Are you looking for food truck books to read, but you're starting to feel overwhelmed with all the content? Or maybe you're trying to find answers to your questions, but you realize you haven't asked the right questions to get those answers. Well, you're in luck. I wrote the book, Before You Launch a Food Truck, Eight Questions Every Aspiring Food Trucker Should Ask. For the past five years, I have been studying the food truck industry and been a diehard food truck customer. And in the process of that, I've learned a lot about what makes a good food truck stand out among the rest. I took eight of those key concepts and created a book where I could have curbside conversations with each of you about them. What makes this book different is not only that it's digestible and designed to not overwhelm you, but it also propels you into action. You can purchase Before You Launch a Food Truck today at thefoodtruckscholar.com shop in paperback and ebook format, as well as on Amazon. For every copy purchased, I'm donating a copy to organizations committed to helping formerly incarcerated individuals re-enter society, particularly those that are interested in starting their own food business. So, Buy a copy today to help yourself and someone else get rolling and keep trucking. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Food Truck Scholar Podcast. I'm your host, Ariel D. Smith, and I appreciate you for choosing to kick it with me for yet another episode. Make sure you share your thoughts on today's episode on social media using the hashtag TFTS Podcast. On today's episode, we are paying tribute to the queen of Creole cuisine. That's right. That is Chef Leah Chase. I was brokenhearted to find out that she passed away this weekend, and there was no way that the food truck scholar was not going to honor the legacy of the woman that has not only changed the course of cuisine, changed the course of civil rights, but so much more. So today we're going to talk about a little bit of who she was, who she is, her legacy, and how is her legacy living on in the lives of so many food truck owners. So sit back and relax. The show starts now. Last year, Chef Leah Chase said these words in the interview. Food builds big bridges. If you can eat with someone, you can learn from them. And when you learn from someone, you can make big changes. We changed the course of America in this restaurant over bowls of gumbo. We can talk to each other and relate to each other when we eat together. So early Sunday morning, I opened Twitter and I saw from the kitchenista that the queen of Creole cuisine has left us. And I paused. I'm personally very heartbroken over the passing of Chef Leah Chase for so many reasons. One reason is that I always wanted to go to Dookie Chase and to meet her and just hear her words of wisdom. And now I, I will, I'm definitely still going to go, 
but it won't be the same because she won't be there. I originally had planned to go to New Orleans about two years ago as part of the research tour organized by the Purdue Black Cultural Center. Every year, we always go to a spot, whether it's uh, domestic or international, and learn about the Black diaspora through food, through the arts, through culture, through history. And we had originally planned to go to New Orleans fall of 2017, but there was a hurricane at the time that we had planned to go. And so the plan was canceled. But on the agenda, on the agenda was for us to go to Dookie Chase. And so, you know, I understand that we couldn't go there because of weather, but hearing of her passing on Sunday really broke my heart that we did not have the opportunity to go. What she means to me and what she means to not only the Creole cuisine world, not only New Orleans cuisine, not only African-American cuisine, but just cuisine, period. What she means to the food world is just absolutely indescribable. I'm going to try my best to put into words what she means to me and, and what I believe she means to the food world and the legacy that I see that she has paved for not just brick and mortar restaurants, not just chefs, period, but I can even see correlations between the food trade industry. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. But this is a heavy loss. I originally was not going to make an episode this week. And that was because tomorrow, actually early tomorrow at 2 a.m., I am heading to Chicago so I can fly out of O'Hare's airport and land in Bristol, England. Uh, on Wednesday because I have an academic conference on food trucks and hip hop. I'm introducing food as an underrecognized element in hip hop. For those of you who have been, you know, listening to my podcast, you know that my dissertation is on black owned food trucks and hip hop culture and why street food needs to be considered an element of hip hop. And so that is actually like the first conference where I get to really you know, interject that and it's at an international level and, you know, I'm apprehensive. I got last minute packing because of course I'm a last minute packer and I'm teaching a intro to African-American studies course this summer. And, you know, I'm trying to get Blackboard together. I got a lot of things on my plate to accomplish in less than 12 hours from now. So, um, you know, it's a lot going on. So I told myself, you know, maybe it'll be all right if I just take a week off and, you know, probably put in a one minute snippet, post that. Because after all, in addition to all of that, this week is also the first, the first, uh, I'm trying to say, it is the one year anniversary of the Food Truck Scholars. So, a year ago on June 6th was the day I sat on my couch and I drew out the logo, got the domain name and just, you know, just got started. So it's a lot going on this week. So I thought I would take a week off. But when I saw that Chef Leah Chase had passed, there was no way I was not going to do something to pay tribute to her legacy. And so that is what this episode is all about. If you do not know who Chef Leah Chase is, you will have a snippet of who she is after this episode. There is no way that one episode could ever do justice to everything that she is, everything that she was, and everything that she has created. But I will do my best 
to educate you just a little bit. So born on January 6, 1923, and the oldest of 11 children, Leah Chase was raised in Madisonville, Louisiana, which was then a small shipping and boat building town. Her father was initially a ship caulker, later had a WPA job during the Great Depression, working for 50 cents a day. She said, quote, father told us to pray for work every day. We'd go fishing in the morning so that we could have perch and grits for breakfast. But a lot of times, man, it was just grits. And because there was no nearby school for black students at the time, Chase left home for New Orleans at the age of 13. She lived with her aunt. She attended a Catholic school for black girls and then returned home to Madisonville after graduating at 16. But two years later, she returned to New Orleans and that's where she stayed. At one point, it wasn't even cooking that she was interested in. At one point, she really envisioned going into the sewing industry because at that point in time, that was considered to be a pretty good job for Creole girls. However, life always has a way of making changes. So by the time she arrived in 1941, New Orleans was in the middle of World War II. And so with more men being caught out to the military, there was now an opening of jobs to women that wasn't always accessible or had not been accessible prior. So one of the jobs that she took on was actually waiting tables at a restaurant called Colonial Restaurant that was in the French Quarter. It was a job that she later recalled as being, quote, one of the best things that could have ever happened. She says she saw just how wonderful the business was and, quote, how you could sit down and enjoy a meal and have someone serve you. Oh, I thought that was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And she would go on to try out different jobs, of course, including working as a bookie and even managing a few local boxers. But it was something about the restaurants that always captivated her. And it was her big break in 1946 when she married Edgar Dukey Chase II, who was a trumpet player. But his parents owned Dukey Chase Restaurant. They had opened it in 1941. Originally, when it was opened, it was a double shotgun and bankrolled by a $600 loan from a local brewery. It served po' boys, lottery tickets, and stayed open late. But Leah Chase expanded it to so much more. As she took on more responsibility, she drew on her early experiences in the French Quarter and began changing the neighborhood establishment into a destination spot. It became a special place for important dinners, first dates, and social gatherings in the black community. One of the big things I want to draw out is during this time, there were not enough or in some places, even any establishments that black people could go to that were fine dining. Let alone those that welcomed them, much less one that was owned by black people. So for her to see this opportunity and create that is monumental. And that's something that you don't want to, you know, ignore. Even in today's world, we got to think about the notion of fine dining and the access to fine dining for African-Americans in particular has always been something that has been hard to come by. And if we had the access, we weren't always necessarily welcomed. So these are still issues that we still have to think about today, just as they were when she first began. One of the things that she said, you know, growing up, mother always kept nice things for company, nice glasses, nice things. That's how we look at it here in reference to Dookie Chase. 
Everybody who comes through that front door is my company. People deserve that. So she knew that people deserved nice things. They deserved to be treated with respect in a time and a place where that was the very last thing that they got. And in some spaces today, that still is the last thing that we get. She has served everyone from James Baldwin to Martin Luther King Sr., who is affectionately known as Daddy King, to Martin Luther King Jr., to Sarah Vaughn, to even the person who would later serve as president of Xavier University from 1968 to 2015, Dr. Norman Francis. He was the first black student to be admitted to Loyola University's law school. He said that the welcome atmosphere that the Chase family created was a bomb when many other doors were closed to him. By the 1950s, the civil rights movement was gaining ground in New Orleans, and the restaurant had become a meeting place for many activists and civic leaders, both black and white. And in many places, it was often a neutral ground. It is where they could go share a meal together, and even the police didn't intervene. Now, there was a moment where a small bomb was thrown in from the store. It damaged the building, but no blood was drawn. But other than that, and there were phone threats. But overall, people knew that that was a space that was sacred. The police never came in. They never intervened. Because at Dookie Chase, it was a safe place for everyone to be. You couldn't have said that anywhere else. Now, if a black person went to a white establishment at that time, probably wouldn't have worked out well. But at Dookie Chase, black people and white people could share a meal together and strategize. And the police knew exactly what was happening, but they never intervened. And most of the strategies would take place on the second floor dining room, which was often packed to capacity. It was the venue for planning the sessions. And you could often see staff going up and down the staircase, making sure that everybody was fed and everybody's needs were met. Now, Chase has always been low-key about the role that she played. For her, she just said, I was just feeding people. She said they were fighting for something and they didn't know what they would find when they went out there. They didn't know what would happen to them on the streets. But when they were here, they knew I'd feed them. That's what I could do for them. So this is a woman that used food as service, as fuel, as motivation, as inspiration This is the person that literally fed the movement. We talk about how Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks led the movement. But rarely do we talk about the people who fed the movement. And not just through food like Leah Chase, but fed it as in who kept, you know, like let's, for example, use the bus boycott. Yeah, they boycotted. But who were the people that fed that boycott as in who were the people that made sure that they would pick up people in their own cars and take people to work. Because not everybody was walking to work after they did that boycott. There were people that did ride shares way before Uber and Lyft. So rarely do we talk about the people that fed the movement, that kept the movement going. And Leah Chase is one of those people that literally and figuratively fed the movement. One of the things that stand out about the restaurant itself beyond... It's amazing food and the gumbo and the white tablecloths. It's the captivating artwork that you can see. 
And for Leah Chase, a lot of that was cultivated simply by the artists that came through her establishment. In many cases, they exchanged their artwork for a bowl of gumbo. And she said, quote, I didn't know anything about collecting art as an investment. Some of the artists, they just send me some pizzas. Sometimes we'd swap them for gumbo. Artists are always hungry and I feed them when they need it. And they took care of me. So for her, it was always about supporting the people who came through that door. No matter who you were, you was going to get some type of support. After decades of taking care of other people, the neighborhood and her local fans had the opportunity to take care of her. In 2005, when Hurricane Katrina flooded New Orleans, destroyed countless lives, and the government failed to protect black people, all of the love that she had poured into her community over the decades would soon come flowing back to her in one of the worst times during Hurricane Katrina in 2005 when floodwaters decimated New Orleans and local and federal government agencies failed to protect its citizens. Thankfully, the community rallied behind her and Dookie Chase. With floodwaters up to four feet high in the restaurant, luckily one of her grandsons was able to salvage and preserve the artwork. But there was a long road to recovery and a long road towards rebuilding Dookie Chase. The community gathered together the first Holy Thursday post-Katrina and at a gumbo luncheon at Muriel's restaurant raised about $40,000, which was about one-sixth of the damage estimate. Then South Bend gave her a new stove to replace the one that she had been using for decades. Other organizations and agencies such as Starbucks and the NAACP donated $175,000 and her local fans and friends attended a series of fundraising events. And despite all of the goodwill that she had poured into the community, all that she had done, whether it was speaking on the behalf of the National Endowment of the Arts, feeding local artists, being a safe haven for community activists and strategists, or just anyone who came through her doors, somehow Chef Leah Chase felt as if she had not done enough to repay the people for all that they had done. She would say, I have to live 10 more years to pay you back. She was 90 years old at the time. She would say to a cheering crowd at her 90th birthday celebration, I can't afford to die. And so part of the ways that she gave back was through writing cookbooks and through teaching at a local college. And no one who has ever encountered Leah Chase has ever said they didn't learn something. In fact, she would captivate crowds and audiences. While many people had to fight for attention, crowds would just cease. They would get quiet to hear her speak because at any moment, she would always give you wisdom, something to live by. What is significant to me about the legacy of Leah Chase is beyond her ability to make amazing food that I am so sad that I did not get a chance to try. It is beyond, you know, pushing boundaries of what a dish is supposed to look like. It is beyond providing a fine dining experience for African-Americans. It is beyond creating a safe space where black people and white people could come together and strategize at a time where that was actually illegal. It is beyond creating a welcoming environment after the civil rights movement because we all know that they did not do it quickly. They 
did desegregation with, quote, all delivery speed, which means when I get ready, she still created a space where black people could feel safe and people of all races could come together and eat and fellowship together. It is beyond the cookbooks she wrote. It's beyond the classes that she taught. It is simply the fact that she was a revolutionary. She pushed us to rethink the power of food. She pushed us to rethink imagination. She pushed us to rethink the arts. She pushed us to rethink what could a society look like if we just had a moment to come together over food. And that is what I see as a lot of times my driving force for the Food Truck Scholar. Every week I get to present in front of you and introduce you to people from across the country, from different walks of life that all have one thing in common. Food in some form or fashion has changed their life and they are using food to change the lives of others. They see food beyond nourishment for the body, but also nourishment for the mind and nourishment from the soul. Whether it is uh, Baruchwa Soul in Durham, North Carolina, whether it is BB Queen in Peoria, Nays Tacos in Compton and Watts, or um, DeAndre Rogers in Atlanta, whether it's Chef Jazz in Atlanta, Grand's Fish and Grits in Birmingham, Hollywood Grill in Birmingham, or any of the food trucks I have talked to in the past year from around the country. All of them have said the same thing, is that we out here to make a difference. We want to create a legacy. We want something better, not just for ourselves, but for other people. And it comes out in different ways, whether it's you know, we're going to feed the homeless or those who experience homelessness or we're going to work with foster teens or we're going to go into the schools and we're going to be there at career day, like um, drop it like it's hot wings and let's make and creations food medic in Nashville. At, at some point, they see food as a tool that's much, much bigger than what's, you know, being presented for you on a table. It is a vehicle to change lives is a vehicle for opportunity. And that's the same thing that Chef Leah saw. It's the same thing that my food truck owner saw. Food isn't a tool of liberation. It is a tool of black liberation. If we want to be more specific. Yes, food means a lot to many different cultures. But as someone who teaches African-American studies, as someone who is an African-American woman and as someone whose dissertation is on black people, I unapologetically say that food in African-American culture has been a practice of liberation. It is how we have freed ourselves, is how we liberate ourselves, is how we captivate ourselves, is how we fall in love with ourselves and everything that is black culture. You cannot talk about black culture and not talk about our food. We put love in our food. How many times have you ever heard that this was made with love? And Chef Leah Chase, she made everything with love. And when I get a chance to talk to food truck owners and I hear the passion in their voice with everything that they talk about, everything they do, every meal that they make, every dessert they make, every pie they make, every whatever it is that they serve, it's always made with love. And so that is what, for me, is a driving force behind what I do with the Food Truck Scholar, is seeing the passion that she had with food, 
and how she was able to communicate that to the masses. And now I have the distinct pleasure of being able to showcase to you many people from all different walks of life, whether they identify as African-American, Puerto Rican, Latinx, Mexican-American, white, Asian, whomever, or or at the intersectionalities of those identities and more, I get to introduce to you people who have fallen in love with food the same way. So what I'm encouraging you all to do, if you do not know her memory, you can easily find different videos of her on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Definitely learn who she is. But beyond that, I'm encouraging you to look at food from here on out the same way that she looked at food. Use it as an opportunity to get to know people. Get to know yourself. Because when we sit down with each other over a pot of gumbo or ice cream, fries, burgers, whatever you like to eat, we can learn a whole lot more about each other. But to the family of Leah Chase, my thoughts and my condolences are out to you all. But I leave you all with the last quote that she said that it would take me 10 years to pay you all back. I can't afford to die. Chef Leah, you don't owe the world anything, nothing at all. You've poured out everything that you had. However, we are forever indebted to you. And I hope each one of us does something to uphold your legacy. Thank you for all that you've done. May you rest in peace. Well, look. I'm out of time, but I'm definitely not out of material. Once again, thank you for kicking it with me for another episode of the Food Truck Scholar Podcast. If you are a food truck owner that would like to be a guest or a listener that has suggestions for a food truck I should try, email me at Ariel, that's A-R-I-E-L, at thefoodtruckscholar.com. And make sure you follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as The Food Truck Scholar to stay up to date on the latest in the food truck world. I'm your host, Ariel D. Smith, signing off and reminding you to eat local, buy local, and support your local food truck owners. I'll see you next week.